This season of Cancelled Movie Report is brought to you by the amazing people that support us over on our newly launched Patreon. But you know what? More about that later on. Hello and welcome to Cancelled Movie Report, the documentary podcast series that talks about the best movies that Hollywood never made. My name is Michael Campbell, but you can call me Cambo, and joining me as always is actor and comedian, Mr. Eden Porter. Thank you very much for having me, Cambo. Oh, you're so welcome. We are <laughs> just hurtling towards the end of this series. As long as it took us to make it, as long as everyone waited, <laughs> we're just wrapping up steadily. <laughs> Mate, I'm, I'm excited for today. I'm very excited. This is a, a fairly big one and an oft-requested one. In mm. fact, Jacka Gray requested this all the way from the UK. Oh, Jacka Gray good. from the UK. That rhymes. <laughs> Yes, they were talking about quite a infamous cancelled movie project from Guillermo del Toro. Yeah, now this one I don't know a lot about. That's so that's be good because there's actually there's been a lot of information I've been able to pull for this one. Sometimes it's peek behind the curtain when we're doing these. Some projects it's really hard to pull information from. It's like from. a dar- barren desert going on for ages. And there's other ones like this one, Guillermo del Toro, we won't shut up about it. So Love it. Love we're it. in the ladder here. So without any further ado, let's get into Guillermo del Toro's Cancelled at the Mountains of Madness. Guillermo del Toro is someone that we once claimed on this show belongs on the Mount Rushmore of cancelled movie projects. And while it's true that he's had many projects announced and ultimately cancelled over his long career, no other project has been as long gestating, as purely driven by the filmmaker, and as heartbreaking as the tale of his self-proclaimed magnum opus, an adaption of H.P. Lovecraft's At the Mountains of Madness. So you said yourself, you're not as you don't know too much about it, but you are familiar with this project. I, I've heard of the name, and I've and I know Lovecrafty and stuff is is uh, always very very hard to turn into film. Like it's so there's a lot of creatures in it that are like y- you can't describe them because they yes. they will drive you insane. It's like yes. how, how, do you, <laughs> how do you put that into film? So I know, I know a bit of Lovecrafty and stuff, and I'm and I've heard um, at the Mountains of Madness, but I don't know about the content of it. That's great. So you're you're. Tr- you're right. I thought before we get into the movie itself, it is worth noting just a little bit about Lovecraft in general yeah. because that does inform certain things. Cthulhu, baby. Well, exactly. So I have best known for creating the creature Cthulhu yeah. uh, and the mythos around in Cthulhu. Uh, for those that don't know Cthulhu, how would you explain Cthulhu? Uh, you know Davy Jones in Pirates of the Caribbean? <laughs> Make him about 50 million stories yeah. tall. Huge tentacled <laughs> creature, depth of the ocean. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So Lovecraft, born in 1917, died 1937. So this is the era that that he was alive in the early uh, 20th century. So he was pretty young. Uh, yeah, he would have been uh, 20, 20. No, that doesn't seem right. It must be 47. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, that's super I young. I don't know. My notes are probably wrong. <laughs> uh, so, um, yeah, his stories often revolved around characters losing their minds. That's a big trope yeah, that, in a Lovecraft. Yeah, time. And creatures and great beasts and a general fear of the unknown. Yeah. Uh, At the Mountains of Madness, written in 1931. So it's a novella. It's a very short story. And there are a lot of films that have been inspired by Lovecraft and At the Mountains of Madness. And we're actually going to touch on them in episode two because they do come back specifically with references. With references. Okay. Okay. I like it. The other thing that we do need to address about Lovecraft, huge racist. Really? He was a huge racist. And And does that come through in his writing? uh, Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, He's not a good guy. He's not a good guy at all. Um, And you might say, well, you know, he died in 1937-ish. Yeah, yeah. Uh, of his time, right? But it was noted that even for his time, he was a huge racist. Really? Yes. Oh, All you man. have to do, and I actually encourage people not to do this, is just look up what he called his pets. Ooh. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, so that's worth addressing, and that's something that a lot of adaptations of his work have addressed. Yeah, In okay. fact, the TV series Lovecraft Country that came out mm. a couple of years ago was all about racial segregation like in stark contrast to so it had the His creatures race. of lovecraft but it was about rachel segregation yeah, okay. and, yeah so so you can't ignore it c- can't ignore it yeah but there are many 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 people that have been influenced by him in hollywood uh and the list includes people that have said they've been influenced by him directly stephen king yeah neil gaiman hr geiger oh yeah of course yeah. uh mike uh, minola he created hellboy uh, alan moore john carpenter and of course 
Guillermo del Toro. Yeah, big time. Which is where we come into the movie. <laughs> okay, so Guillermo del Toro. What, what do you feel about him? Do you are you a Guillermo del Toro fan? Big time. Yeah, Great. yeah, yeah. I love, I love his, I love his that he's so invested in creatures yeah. and animatronics and like he does a lot of makeup. He, yeah, he, he he uses a lot of special effects really um, physically. Yes, in space. Yeah, yeah, a lot of practical makeup effects. Yeah, yeah. He also, he tends to find a real beauty in creatures and the yeah, odd and the obscure yeah. and things like that. So at this point, we're in 2006. Okay. This is where we're, we're setting ourselves. The draft of the script that leaked is from 2006. Is this, is this pre or post Hellboy? He had just directed Hellboy. Okay, this is around the same time. Yes. Yep. Uh, in fact, he had also had completed work on Pan's Labyrinth at this time. Yeah. So at this point, he had Hellboy, he had Pan's Labyrinth, he'd done a big Hollywood film, he'd done a critically acclaimed film. So he had freedom, essentially, to yep. do whatever he wanted. And he turned to what his dream project was, which was an adaptation of At the Mountains of Madness by H.P. Lovecraft. <laughs> the script was written with a longtime collaborator of his, a guy called Matthew Robinson. Uh, he's also written Mimic, Crimson Peak, and Pinocchio, or with Guillermo del Toro. Okay, so yeah. this guy writes with him a lot. Yeah. So this is peak del Toro, just after Pan's Labyrinth, just after Hellboy, writing with the guy that he always writes with when he has absolute freedom. And his ambition was to direct a big-budget, R-rated horror film. Oh. Uh, and that was met with some immediate pushback. Yeah, you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. Yeah, let's yeah, just yeah. come down here. But he said... And we've got a couple of clips of him talking about this. Some of them, I do apologize. I've had to clean up the audio as much as I can, yeah. but they were filmed on like a phone in an auditorium. Uh, With his consent? <laughs> <laughs> but he said the tone was going to be big yep. and scary and pulpy. So I've got a clip about him talking a little bit about that and, and, and what he felt that the movie needed to be. But the aspect I'm loving in this is and I cannot tell you how we're going to do it. But I'm trying to find a way to show the creatures but not show them that you can never quite grasp <coughs> what they are the shuttles? yeah the shuttles and part of, part of it and what we're doing is we're working with very simple principles but that have not been done on film ever before and and uh, uh, with Lovecraft what you do then is embrace the other side of him which was the pulp side too because I think mind you I think it's a mistake to negate the literary value of Lovecraft, but it's also a mistake to negate his Polish enchantment. Okay, so mm. let's cover let's off what, what yeah. he said there, because it, it is a little bit hard to, yeah. to understand. So he said what they wanted to do is they wanted to show creatures where you never fully comprehend them, them yeah. with some techniques that have never been done before. And he also said that... While you can't negate the um, influence that Lovecraft have, you also shouldn't negate. He's a very pulpy writer. He wrote like pulp fiction novels. Yeah. So they should be kind of pulpy and it should be kind of fun. Yeah. That that's always with Lovecraftian stuff. It always comes back to it, it's how you show these creatures that will drive you insane if you see them. Exactly. That, that's, that's always the big thing that's been really hard to do. Yeah. So Del Toro continued to be attached to other projects in the meantime including Halo, which we did cover on this oh, yep. project, uh, The Hobbit. But all the while, uh, he he was developing at the Mountains of Madness. This was his, yeah. And so this is from 2006 all the way through to 2010. So when he left The Hobbit, he refocused on at the Mountains of Madness. Oh, jeez. And this is where it really started to escalate. Yeah. So this is uh, it's 12 odd years ago now. 2010 started to pick up uh, momentum because a producer came on board for this film. So this was going You're to be You're starting produced. to smile now. This producer better be... 2010, <laughs> the producer that came on board to produce this film, hot off the biggest box office film of all time, was James Cameron. No way. <laughs> yeah. Really? Yep. James Cameron came on Jim, board. Jim to us. Jim to us. Friend of the show. But you listening, you call him James. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Cameron. <laughs> yeah, so James Cameron came off to... Came on to produce. So now wow. let's reassess at this okay, point. The, the big three. And remember, this didn't make it. Being directed by Guillermo del Toro, hot off a big comic book film and a critically acclaimed Oscar winning film. Tick. James Cameron, hot off the biggest film of all time, comes on as a producer. Tick. They also sign Industrial Light and Magic to do all the effects and design all the creatures. Big tick, <laughs> yes. mate. And they had a budget set for $150 million. 
How are we not watching this film? How is this film not in my DVD collection right now, Kimbo? You would think so many aces up the sleeve, yeah. right? So $150 million, uh, they also needed a star to anchor it. So initially, um, the main character is called William Dyer. And initially they had talked about possibly James McAvoy as William oh, yeah. Dyer. But they did eventually sign an actor. They signed uh, Thomas Maypother the Fourth. No, not ringing any bells. No? Uh, you may know him better as his stage name, Tom Cruise. Oh, <laughs> very good. <laughs> so they signed on Tom Cruise to star. So Tom signed on. Yeah. Tom wow. agreed to star. James Cameron agreed to produce. ILM agreed to do all the effects and the creature designs. It's a, what? Wait, wait, uh, <laughs> this. Before we even get into this, how did this not... Get made. <laughs> get made. So we have Del Toro talking about um, he was just about to start production on this and he's talking about the long road it took to get to at the Mountains of Madness. Again, audio is not great here. We will assess what he said. You know, I hope I hope we can do it. We, we've been working for now five weeks in design, guided by principal. I mean, I've been thinking about this movie 30 years. <laughs> I wrote the screenplay with Matthew Robbins 13 years ago. The first time I met Jim Cameron in 1991 when he saw Chronos, he said, what would you like to do next? I said, Mountain of Madness. <laughs> so this is, this is truly outstanding. And, and if I screw up, I'll, I'll screw up wholeheartedly and sincerely. And there's no other way to, to do it. I mean, I think that, that uh, I'm approaching it. This is not a simple wager for me. It's not a movie I'm going to do and then on to the next. This is a landmark for me. You know, I'm, 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 I'm putting all the chips I have gotten making films and I'm getting a single So there you go. He said, if I screw up, I'll screw up sincerely. And this is not a one-off for me. This he's, is he's putting, it. he's putting all his chips in. All his chips. All his chips in. Also, uh, Jim to him. Yeah, Jim, you, you'll notice. <laughs> you'll notice that they must have had a good relationship. Jim Cameron to him. Yeah. So what a stacked corner of chips he had, right? Yeah, everything is in their favor right now. So Del Toro. Nothing can go wrong. No. I just want to put that out here now, Cambo. <laughs> and no one can come no. in and ruin this. So Del Toro, Cameron, and Cruz, they worked for the next several months on concept art. They developed miniature models of sets. They did CGI previs and character designs. So um, I also, just before we get into the story, I also want to pull this clip. This is from an interview he did with Collider where he talks about all of the concept art that they did develop for the film. This is after it had been cancelled. Now I have to ask you about a project that I haven't heard any updates on in a little while, but obviously it is so you as a director mm -hmm. with your style and your type of content. Yeah, I guess. Haunted Mansion? I was going to say uh, Mountains Madness. Oh, yeah. Because, wow, yeah, do yeah. I want to see that happen. Well, what we'll do is one day, one day, um, I'll show you the art. I'll show you everything we did. I mean, we did over 300 pieces of art. We did storyboards, we did models. Uh, we had a whole presentation and you will cry. Oh. You, you will vote, why? <laughs> you, will cry. you will literally whip from the ice. <laughs> so 300 pieces of concept art that they designed for this. They had the whole movie essentially sketched out already. I love it that he's literally like, like this will break you. Yeah. This will break your heart. If you cry, you cry. Yeah. Well, that's Russian. Yeah. <laughs> so... We know Tom Tom Maypother the Fourth is going to start. Yeah, yeah. James Cameron producing. Uh, Del Torre putting all his chips, chips in on this one. Shall we get into the story? Let's do it, Cameron. Before oh, we get into it, this is a spooky one. Uh oh. Are you prepared for a spooky one? Really? We Should we dim really the lights? Done, we haven't really done a spooky one before. This is on true. This. Yeah, Alien Three. Oh yeah, I guess that's a little, a little bit, bit spooky. spooky. But this is are we talking. Yeah. We're talking R-rated. Spooky times. This, this is, is coming up. Okay, okay. So let's get into the story of At the Mountains of Madness. Whoa, 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 whoa. Just before we get into the movie, I just wanted to let you know that we've recently launched a Patreon. So you know what? If you love the show and you want to support what we do. It really is the best way to do it. There's a whole bunch of cool behind the scenes content on there. And we've even launched a unique podcast exclusive to Patreon. It's called Casting Calls. And we talk about famous actors that almost landed iconic roles. And in classic cancel movie report fashion, we make it real. There's a link in the episode notes and you know what? We'd love to have you. But now let's get into the film. 
The story begins somewhere near and dear to us, Eden. Geographically. Tasmania. No, it doesn't. October 1939. That's basically... It's next door. door It's next door. This is crazy. We see a derelict whaling ship named the Arkham float aimlessly off the harbour. There's no sign of crew on board. Some patrolmen go out and board the ship to investigate. The ship is in complete disarray. A faded American flag is in tatters. There's seawater everywhere, waist deep. And mummified dogs float in the water. Some 35mm film cans are stacked up in a corner. And they come across a storeroom. Sir, it's locked from the inside, sir. They pry open the door to find a crazed old man, disgusting looking, inside the locked room. But he doesn't speak. He's chin deep in water. And as the patrolmen slowly enter, they notice the rotted remains of another human being almost glued on the wall. And they approach the crazed man. When suddenly he snaps, he grabs an axe and starts swinging and screaming. Bang! The patrolman shoots the man and he collapses. I didn't think, I, you, didn't, you didn't say it was going to be this spooky, mate. You gave, we need to really do a spooky warning. Because this right. is one, one last time, the siren's going, yeah, spooky, spooky warning. warning. <laughs> this is this is crazy. Yeah. Man, the ship's called the Arkham. The Arkham. That's yes. a cool name for that's a, the, that's a crazy That's the whaling ship. ship. Man, mummified dogs, people stuck on the walls. Yeah. This is water everywhere. Water everywhere. Why is that guy in the closet? Why is he up to his chin in water? Yeah. Oh my it's god. This is crazy. So many mysteries. So uh, also set in the past, set in 1939. Yeah. Okay. So we cut to Hobart docks with people stocking up another ship. This is the HMS Moonstone, and we're introduced to Alan Starkweather. He's the captain of this new ship, and he's about to set off on an expedition to Antarctica. This is a British uh, Army general. Gotcha. And he and his warrant officer, they climb into a Bentley heading somewhere. We learned that the Arkham, the ship that just came, uh, you know, like wafting shore, into the... Yeah. That went missing almost 10 years ago. <gasps> along with its sister ship, the Miskatonic. Starkweather has handed the documents and films that were recovered from the ship. Don't Tom, look at those films, Kimber. The Arkham has returned and it has one survivor. Mate, it's, if you start producing that film, then it's going to be spooked out in there. Well, this is great. This is and so this is in Tasmania as well. Uh, initially, yeah. So, but we could have. This is, oh yeah, going, mate, yeah, we could have been. We could have patrolman been one and two <laughs> shooting people in the face. My God, look at that crazed <laughs> old man! And we wouldn't even had to hide the accent. No, our accents would have been sort of like that. <laughs> oh my bloody God! God. <laughs> so we cut to the hospital with the madman from the opening scene. And Starkweather comes to visit him. Isn't he shot? He was shot. He didn't die. Oh, okay. He was just, he was shot. Now he's in hospital recovering from the shot. Uh, We discover the autopsy of the rotted corpse that he was discovered with. It died of a gunshot wound. And Starkweather tries to communicate. Speak in the Dutch. The crazed man says nothing. So giving up, Starkweather mentions to his warrant officer. I'm hardly in a position to get involved with this. With Hitler in Poland, my timetable is even more urgent. I must reach Antarctica by... Must not go. He suddenly, he grabs Starkweather's arm. I say, sir, let go now. You must not sail to Antarctica. He asks them, what what year is this? And they say, why, it's 1939. The man is, is shocked. It doesn't make any sense to him. See, he tells them his name is William Dyer. And he was a professor aboard the Miskatonic University Expedition. And he was 25 years old when it first left. So this is where I think the Tom Cruise casting causes its first problem. Because yeah, in the script, good. Dyer was supposed to be around 25. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. This is, uh, this is what 2000 is. No, I can also hey. imagine Tom being like, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can play any age, <laughs> any age, any age at all. But he says that when he left on the expedition, that was back in September of 1930. And he starts telling his tale. We now cut to 1930, Miskatonic University at a garden party. We see all the professors before their big expedition. You're making this garden party sound as spooky as the ship that we Ooh. had. <laughs> Ooh, it's a celebration. <laughs> oh, here comes the tea and crumpets. <laughs> but they're, they're about to go on their big expedition, so they're having a party to celebrate before they leave. Yep. And celebration, and there's reporters everywhere. And champagne's flowing. And we meet the expedition's lead professor, Professor Lake. 
and he's holding court with a bunch of reporters. Okay. We also see William Dyer, but he is far from crazy here. He is young and healthy and good looking. <laughs> Emphasis on the good looking. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. His head's and tall. Yeah, yeah, You're very <laughs> taller, tall. Taller than Huge a regular. <laughs> hands and feet. <laughs> see, Dyer, he's pleading with his pregnant wife Anne because Anne doesn't want him to go on the expedition. Oh, she does. She's pregnant. She begs with him to leave with her and enjoy their life. See the birth of their child, which he'll definitely miss if he goes. And Dyer, he reluctantly, he agrees. He says, you know what? I'm going to quit the expedition, but I just need to tell Professor Lake. End credits. (laughs) (laughs) So he he goes over and in the garden party, he approaches uh, Professor Lake and his oldest friend, a guy by the name of Danforth, his best friend. And he's going to tell them that unfortunately he needs to leave the expedition. I should have left then and there. Anne knew it. She knew me better than myself. Unfortunately, so did Lake. Always travel light, gentlemen. A couple of ships, a few tons of food, four airplanes, and something warm for the winter. (laughs) Young Dyer, just in time. Join us. Professor Lake, there's something we need to talk about my participation. Bill, Bill. I am not blind. I know what you're going through. I, too, was young once. Do exactly as you must. I'm very sorry, sir. Oh, no, no, no. Please. (laughs) No apologies. But before you leave, a crate arrived this morning. It'll only take a minute. A crate? From from whom? What's in it? Something you definitely must see. Lake leads Danforth and Dyer down a corridor, lined with tall glass cabinets containing bones and pickled specimens. Did I ever tell you that they named this wing after my grandfather? Yes, sir, I believe you did. And that the library was also... Named after your father. You've mentioned that too, sir, twice. (laughs) Forgive me. I tend to dwell on it. But it's not easy, you see, having these illustrious dead men weighing on your shoulders. Not easy at all. At your age, time has no meaning. It's of no consequence. But I'm 52. For the longest time, I had the certainty that mine has been a life lived in vain. Sir, you have achieved great... I said I had. As Lake opens the door, Dyer's jaw sags in astonishment. Lake's office is wall-to-wall books and glass cases. In the center stands something, unseen by the camera. The creature was heavily decomposed when fossilization began, but the striations on both flanks clearly suggest the existence of other appendages, you see? Sir, I've, I've never seen anything like it. As Dyer approaches, the display comes into view. A massive, if fragmentary, fossil of a monstrous creature. Want to venture a date? I, I, there are faint traces of a layered stromatolite that would suggest... Precambrian. Late Archean. Impossible. No, nothing remotely as complex as this creature existed on Earth. It must be a fake. Oh, it's real. That much I'm sure of. <laughs> You may recall the Randolph expedition. Yes, sir. Six months ago, uncharted stretch of land west of Mount Lister. Precisely. Not much came of it, as I recall. That's what was said, wasn't it? In fact, Professor Randolph was intimidated by this find. I am not. If we can dig up further evidence to sustain its providence... We'll make history, Bill. Are you interested in that, Dyer? Making history? So this is where we find William Dyer now. This is the uh, the old call to adventure. It is. Uh, Torn now, he, he wants to know what's out there. It's a crazy... They've already started on the creatures. That's pretty, pretty early. Yeah, so they've got a big fossilized skull of a, yeah. of a creature that was found six months ago on another expedition, and they were too frightened to, to walk to follow this it up. The only thing that I didn't... There was one description of his... When he came in his jaw, 
was sagging. Sagging, yeah. <laughs> it wasn't a slack jaw. It was sagging with his just, just, just really weird. Uh, now, an important detail is during this scene, at one point it does cut outside to uh, Dyer's wife, Anne. She's waiting for him. And she leaves. She says, oh, he's no, not coming he's back. Not coming he's back. Not he's seen the giant skull. And now I just wanted to practice. Can you just give me a bit of a wave? Wave? So we're just waving goodbye to the last female character. Oh, that you're going to really? see the script. <laughs> oh, That's it. That's it. That's I really feel one. that they were rounding her out, you know? They were really creating something there. No. Nope. We, we were attached to Anne. Yeah, we were. Yeah, we yeah. loved Anne. So, yes, they have a fossil and they want to find out more about it. And that's what this whole expedition this is, is really about. about. Yeah. So, we now cut to a bit of a montage. Remember, that was September 1930. We now cut to October 1930. Okay. In the Arctic Circle. And the Arkham and her sister ship, the Miskatonic, they sail together. And everyone is getting mail. It's a big mail call. But Daya gets nothing. We meet several other of the crew members, including two cameramen. That's where the 35 mil film came from. Oh. And they're recording the expedition. And via some old film footage, we're introduced to dog handlers on the ship as well. So this included uh, a character called Larson, who's the chief dog handler. Uh, and he was actually said to be played by Ron Perlman. Oh, re- really? So Larson doesn't appear in the original novella. This character was invented specifically for Ron, Ron Perlman to play. Because he loves him from exactly. Hellboy and Yes. Yeah. Um, so we have, a, we have a bunch of people on the, on the team here. We have the research team and some of the boat crew. I'm going to go across just some of the key figures yep. just so you can kind of keep track. Similar to Predators, there's a, there's a bit of a cast list here and it might be easier to know who they are before we go in. So obviously we have Dyer. That's, that's Tom Cruise. We also have Professor Lake in charge of the expedition, and of course, his best mate, Dan Forth, Dyer's best mate. Uh, We also have uh, another professor called Atwood. And Atwood, he's he's the religious type. He's always one. Yeah, 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 there's always one. And then there are other, I've put here, cannon fodder. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So we have two characters called Pip and Gendry. Uh, They're the two filmmakers. And we have other professors, Daniels, Sumner, Higgins, Gordon. There's a bunch of other scientists. Simple Anglo-Saxon names. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then, of course, we have some of the boat crew. Most importantly is Captain Douglas. He's the captain of the boat. Uh, we have uh, Larson, the dog handler, yep. and his other dog handler, a guy called Gunnison. Okay. Gunnison, that's Gunnison. a cool name. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then we have McTeague. He is the comms officer. Uh, I've just realized when dogs is probably mean they're going to go sledding and stuff. Yes. Yeah. yeah I just I was like, why are they taking so many dogs? Yeah, they're, that, specifically yeah. they're huskies. Huskies, yeah. Huskies, okay, that makes yes. way more sense. So on board the boat, uh, there are also four aeroplanes, two on each boat, like mini, like Cessna-style aeroplanes. Yeah. Uh, there's eight drills. There's 55 uh, sled dogs, and there's thousands of pounds of food and equipment. So these are big Man, whaling this ships. this is huge. Yeah, 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 yeah big yeah. whaling ships. We now cut in this montage to November 1930. They're at the same location as the Arctic Circle. Yeah. Lots of equipment. And they're finding fossils of ancient marine life deep in the water. And they continue, but it's nothing like the original fossil that Lake showed Dyer. And Lake is obsessed with finding something like it. We now cut to New Year's Eve, 1931. The ships both sail through a heavy fog. Lake stands on the main deck, looking at over the water and the clouds on the horizon, when he's suddenly joined by Captain Douglas. We'll be in that fog bank all night and all day tomorrow. But it's utterly fantastic. It looks like a city, doesn't it? A mirage at sea, just like the desert. A glacier becomes a boat. A land link appears where there is none. Can't trust your eyes this far south. The Miskatonic flashes its light, sending a signal to the Arkham. The Miskatonic has received a message from Boston. Having trouble with our radio. Magnetic field, perhaps. Perhaps. Sir, this just came in. Professor Dyer, his wife and baby, died in childbirth, and the both of them. How uh, deliver the news? No, 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 no. Say, uh, say nothing to him. Not, not now. I, uh, I know him well, Captain. I'll take care of it at the right time. Trust me. 
So this is where we're getting our first hint that Lake perhaps is putting this uh, quest over the safety and life Would of some say, of the crew. Yeah, above all else. All else. So, oh yes, God. unfortunately, Daya, that wife that we love so much, Anne. We got to know. Uh, her and the baby have both died in childbirth. This is... But he doesn't know that. This is grim, mate. He doesn't this is know grim. that. As this is happening, the original fossil they brought on board starts vibrating. I was going to say starts glowing <laughs> or something like that, yeah. And it's described in the script, starts vibrating like a homing beacon. Oh. Something is disturbing it. So we now cut to Dyer, and he's having a dream about his wife, but it slowly morphs into a nightmare. He sees her standing alone on a frozen tundra, when suddenly she is gone, and Dyer sees, instead, a lone, dark figure walking towards him. The Dark Man. This is what it's called in the script. His eyes snap open, and he gets out of bed. So he's had this nightmare with this. His wife's being replaced by this sole dark figure just walking across the, the endless man. plane. Is, it, is this like a Slender Man ripoff? A little bit. A yeah, little, okay. little bit Slender Man. Yeah, yeah. So his eyes snap open, and he gets out of bed. And we see now that he's thin, pale, and has long nails. And he stumbles in a daze through the ship. And we see other crewmates. And they're all sleeping or passed out. And the food is old and rotted. Dyer goes up to the deck and no one is there. The horizon is still covered in a thick fog. And he ventures down into the engine room. All the engines are running at full speed. But no one is there manning them. This is not good. Crack! The Arkham smashes through a heavy layer of ice. The ship is bearing down on the ground. So now we get a bit of an action sequence. Essentially, he's woken up, but he's aged. He's aged, everyone's asleep, all the food is rotted, no one's around, and it's the, the, it's bearing down onto the ice sheets. Uh, so yeah, the water starts rushing in as it's bearing on the ground. It's washing some of the crew away. Cargo's toppling from one side to the other. The dog handler, Larson, he's down below deck and he's saving some of his dogs. And Derek, which is the big crane type of the that swings and it hits Dyer. He's bleeding and almost falls overboard before Danforth catches him and pulls him back on board. What's it down for? He's always there for his mate. Frost starts encompassing the ship while instruments are going crazy. Compasses spinning madly. The ship slowly stops rocking and the fog clears. One of the men asks, where the hell are we? Then the script says, at the mountains of madness. (laughs) (laughs) In big bold line it says that. Uh, that idea of the frost creeping on the ship uh-huh. is it anything like day um, after tomorrow have you, I was going to say have you said that when it it, is, the fr- it's like attacking them yes, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. they're running away from the <laughs> yeah. cold it is a bit like that it's, it's like um, it's like growing on the ship yeah, all the nice. ice yeah. this is the description of the mountains of madness from the script a land unseen by human eyes dreamlike mountains jagged peaks and valleys dreamlike low slanting sunbeams volcanoes smoking all under a purplish sky and then this is how Dyer describes it. Of course, he's, um, he's doing a monologue as he's explaining his story. So this is his monologue of how he describes it. The mountains before us surpassed anything in imagination. At 36,000 feet, they put Everest out of the running. But at the very top, through the clouds, we could make out bizarre structures. Unnatural, almost symmetrical. What on earth could have built them? What could have lived in such a cold dead place. The answer became evident soon enough. Nothing human. Nothing human at all. Thank God we put that alarm on, Eden. Because it's getting spooky in here. Have you turned the air con up? I I feel like I can see my breath now, (laughs) Kembo. This is, oh man. So he explains there's structures at the top. Yeah. That look like they've been built. Can I just say great sound design as well? Because the music is doing a lot. Also, we need to give a huge shout out to Evan Ferrante, who was voicing Tom Tom Cruise Cruise. for us. He's better known online as not Tom Cruise, is his his handle. So Uh, good. And if you wanted Tom Cruise, you go to Evan Ferrante, essentially. Uh, People may have seen him. I know the Corridor guys do deep fakes. They did a pretty elaborate Tom Cruise deep fake. Evan is who they used. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. nice. Um, So, yes, big thank you to him as well for, for voicing our William Dyer. So, yes, there's structures at the top of the mountains. So the cameras, they're, they're filming again, as everyone is in awe. And we, we also cut back to Starkweather. He's watching this at the hospital. He's watching the film. Oh, this back in modern. Yes. So, so, so yeah, every okay, now cool. and then, it cuts very back. rare, yeah. it'll cut back. 
there's incomprehensible geometric shapes made by something not human at the top of the mountain. Well, the ship has run aground, and they're completely iced in. And the, the, the crew, they chip away at the ice, but it seems to grow back just as quickly as they can crack it. This is like, there's something spooky about ships in ice yeah. and stuff. It's like there's The Terror. The Terror was yeah. another uh, a TV series that was uh, fantastic at that sort of ominous feeling of something uh -huh. yeah, going wrong. Yeah. So yeah, they, they, they chip it away and it grows back straight away. We learned that the sister ship, the Miskatonic, that's missing. And no one knows where it and is. And their radio was, was not Playing working. up, yeah. exactly. We cut to the onboard lab in the ship. And several professors are trying to make one of the drills work because, of course, the drills are frozen over as well. Yep. And Dyer enters and he's concerned. And he notes that all the clocks on the ship have stopped. And they all pull out their watches too. They've all stopped as well. Everyone confirms that the date reads January 28th, 6.14am, which, according to their calendars, is still weeks away. What? Yeah. The drill manages to slowly grind to life, but Dyer is still worried. He's not sure. They seem to kind of, you know, pawn it off, but die. He's not so yeah, sure. Why? Up. What's going on? We're now with McTeague, the comms officer. And he sits at his radio trying to get it to work as he hears something on the other end. Like a strange, inhuman voice. Get out. <laughs> <laughs> and he starts to call for help. He's doing the SOS call for help. Come in, Miskatonic. Calling Miskatonic. This is the research vessel Arkham. Do you read? We need assistance. Present position unknown. Do you hear that, sir? The voice. I, I can boost it. Just give me a minute. But the voice on the other end seems to mimic him. Almost as if it's mocking him. <laughs> so they discover the object that pierced the hull of their ship it's an eight foot tall green obelisk with ancient runes on it they peer into the water under the ship and there's hundreds of similar monoliths sitting below them in the water see we see that they've set up a base camp on an ice field now. Yeah. Larson and Gunnison they spot some large penguins over in the distance they figure they might be good for the dogs to eat let's go hunting yeah. we see the penguins up close though they don't, we do, as, as the viewer. And they all stare up at the mountain, not moving. But these are not normal penguins. No, these are mad penguins. Blue veins stick out of their white and translucent skin. These are albino penguins. Oh. Yeah. And they're just staring at the mountain, not moving. The scientists are studying some of the monoliths that uh, struck the ship. And they study them in a large... Uh, they've set up a big tent for all of their, uh, you know, their scientific experiments. Yeah. And, and they're, they're um, checking of all the artifacts and stuff. We see old film footage as Lake takes a crowbar and manages to crack one of them open. And a green liquid pours out, as does the body of the creature resembling the fossil that they had. Everyone is petrified, except for Lake. So they've found one of these creatures inside the monolith, covered in green goo. They're like tombs. Yeah, essentially. Yeah. Or maybe they, maybe they have a purpose. Danforth looks through a stack of old books and he finds an old leather-bound book with a strange monster etched on its cover. The book contains engravings of different creatures, including the one they've discovered, and a diagram of one cut in half. We now cut to one of the creatures, cut in, in half. Good. And Lake, he's making notes into his voice recorder while he, Fowler, and Dyer examine the creature. When extended, their membranes resemble serrated wings, seven feet long, tip to tip, suggesting an avian predator. Their multiple ocular globes are protected by a triple membranous lid, probably marine in origin. These five radiating lobes, they're, they're all brain, do you think? <laughs> Young man, I'm not even convinced that's the head. <laughs> if it is, a cranial cavity of this size would indicate intelligence of a very high order. So this species may be unique to Antarctica, a self-contained environment, an isolated population, like the marsupials. A storm is kicking up. I want everyone back on board. Well, as much as I'd like to stay, I'm going to leave you two gentlemen along with your new friends. 
The flesh is cut in every case, not torn or decomposed, you see? Exactly here. Our fossil was decapitated. Deliberate neck wounds. Something went after the head time after time. Predator. No teeth or claw marks. I believe they're combat wounds. Done with a weapon. Well, whatever did this, I'm just glad it's gone. Okay, some interesting information. Yeah. There. So they've found this uh, this alien, or this this creature. Yeah, this weird thing with a giant brain cavity. Yes, it's got tentacles. It's but, got wings. But it got wings. But it seems that by their research, it was killed by something else. By something that used a weapon. Yeah. So the old decapitation. Exactly. So yeah, not all is there's something going okay, on here. I don't know. Going on I don't know about you. Mounts of madness. <laughs> I don't know about them, Cambo. They're really mad. We cut back to Larson and Gunnison. They're approaching the penguins on a sled, and suddenly they stop. See, there's a giant fault line crack in the ice in front of them, and it's a half a mile long. They get off the sled and they approach the field of penguins by foot because they can't they can't sled around the corner. Larson, they've got the dogs with them. Larson manages to shoot one of the penguins and topples over. And none of the other penguins react at all. I could imagine that. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just unsettling just imagery. Bang. They walk through the strange albino penguins. There's like a field of them. As the fog starts creeping in around them. You know, it'd be great if all the penguins' heads just go dunk and turn at them at the same time. Would it? <laughs> they notice all the, all the penguins, they have no eyes. Oh. No eyes at all. And Larson, he stabs the bird that he shot and he slits it down its stomach and a rancid intestines fall and it clearly rotted away. The fog starts to thicken and the dogs start barking. Gunnison notices something. There's what appears to be a rudimentary fence line all around them. As if the penguins are being farmed by something. Something moves in the fog. The penguins all turn and face the two yes. men. <laughs> Good. I'm so glad they got that in. <laughs> The dogs break away from their chains and they run off into the fog. Larson, he loads his shotgun and he chases off after the dogs into the fog. But something else is out there. We see tendrils through the air in the fog. Larson finds one of the huskies, but something is wrong. It's transforming, sprouting tentacles and crab-like legs. The tendrils whip out and it grabs hold of Gunnison next to Larson. And it pulls him in and it begins to fuse with Gunnison as well. He's fusing in with the dog creature. The fog continues to roll in, even thicker and thicker. Larson can see nothing but white all around him. Unhuman sounds all around him in the fog. Through the fog, as he's running away, he sees a shape in the distance. One that he recognises. It's the Miskatonic. He runs past it, and it's partially frozen in the ice too. And there's not a soul around. No one on board. Suddenly, Gunnison stumbles close to him out of the fog and he's completely now fused with the dog and he reaches out for Larson trying to fuse with him too Larson raises the shotgun and shoots Gunnison straight in the face but Gunnison keeps coming Larson then turns the gun downward shooting straight into the ice floor he falls through into the frozen water the tentacles of the creature attempt to go in after him but they fizzle and burn when they touch the water Larson swims away into the <laughs> oh man, there is so much going on here. Yeah. Did, okay, first of all, mm-hmm. the thing. Yeah. How, like, how. You, you, you were going to see uh, throughout, uh, without giving away too much, some very strong The Thing vibes going Hugely. on in this film. The dog, the merging, the uh-huh. blo- the, the body horror, the. Yep. Yeah, yep. Yeah, 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 yeah. This is a big body horror uh, film. Yeah, there's a lot it's of cr- transmorphing people. Cronenberg esque. There's a lot of um, like morphing and blending and fusing of things and people and all kinds. And it doesn't like water. Doesn't like the water. A la signs. <laughs> Swing away, Larson. Swing true. away. Like, this is pulling from everywhere. It this is. is great. Or maybe everything else pulled, pulled from, from it. Yeah. So yes, he he shot down into the water and he swam away into the darkness. And the creature went to go after him. But it was burning his skin. I would have gone, I would have done the other way, personally. I would have shot under the, the feet of the creature and made that fall in and then walked away. 
Job when, done. When you're in a panic, sometimes you yeah. don't think. Well, think maybe he through. maybe he got a bit of the the mountain madness. Yeah, yeah he's yeah, got yeah, a bit of mountain madness in the yeah, head. Yeah. <laughs> but I love this idea that there was uh, it was it was a horror scene done in complete whiteness. Yeah, that is. And cool. this is something that uh, Del Toro has touched on, albeit with not great audio, about how we wanted to do that. What what I what I think uh, is very hard to to say much without spoiling the secrets of the creatures. But uh, we are using the white uh, in a very eerie way. What I I jokingly call it is, uh, or darkness is going to be the white. So we know that. And we know that the color palette is very muted. Uh, And then a very specific palette of greens and cyans, cyan and and greens uh, in in the in the city, you know, once you get to the city, and, and flashes of color, you know, uh, I cannot tell you where, but we, and then there's a whole interlude that is very saturated, but it's a very, it's an incredibly visually original. So he, he talks there about the darkness in this film is actually white. Yeah. So instead of darkness, it'll be complete white. It also sounded like he's in the Moss Eisley Canteen. And then he did say, because of course they saw that city structure. He said yeah, that was a green colour. Yeah. That they wanted well, it seems like the obelisks and all this. Is, exactly. It's like white and then there's green. Yeah, a bit yeah, of green. Yeah. So we're back at the base camp now. And Danforth, he reads from that old book that he found with the monster etched on. And it's written that these beings, they're aliens. And they're called the Old Ones. Oh, yes, they always refer to the old ones. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they discuss all kinds of possibilities about these creatures warping time and space. The ice keeps growing back so quickly because weeks pass in mere minutes here. Oh. They reason that the answer for all of this, it might lay in the structures up on that mountain. Yeah. Maybe there's some answers up there. Yeah, so, yeah, nice. that's why, you know, when they're chipping away and it grows back. Yeah, because yeah, it's instantaneously. It's instant. It's time is passing at a rapid rate. We now cut to the team and they're readying to take two of the small planes they have on their ship up to the top of the mountain. But before they leave, we join Lake and Dyer in the lab as they're getting ready to go on. Everything we've ever learned, every piece of knowledge out the window, physics, biology, we'll need a new set of tools, a a new language. What will we find up there? To think that this fossil seemed so important. It was just a first clue, a piece of rubble. Insignificant, really. Sir, we better hurry. We are scientists, Bill. This is what we live for. You couldn't miss this for the world. I... Are you glad you came along? Grateful, really, it's it's all just a bit overwhelming. So am I. There's something. Go to my stateroom. Lake presses a small key into Dyer's hand. There's a box on my desk. Look inside. Now? Now. Dyer enters Lake's stateroom and sees a box on Lake's crowded desk. He uses the key to open it. Inside, a folded telegram. The message from Boston. Back on the ice field, Captain Douglas is debriefing Lake near the waiting aircraft. Follow the coastline. Sumner's headed east. You, go west. We can triangulate. You have my pledge, Captain. We will return with a way out of this. Keep the coast in sight. The Mr. Tonic would do that. Look for a whaling station, a weather outpost. Captain Douglas, you've made it abundantly clear. It's your ship. I, however, am in charge of the expedition. Dyer approaches. Ah, Dyer. He throws the telegram at you found Dyer punches him in the face. A mist of blood explodes from Lake's nose as he falls back. Dyer is upon him, pummeling him again and again. 
Danforth leaps in and separates them. Jesus Christ, Bill, what are you doing? When were you planning on telling me? She was my wife, Lake. My wife! It's not your fault. Or mine, can't you see? Anne is dead! And the baby! He knew! He's known for weeks! You're here because you knew your priorities. You just won't admit it. You chose what was best for you. Who are you to say? Everything is abstraction. Art, poetry, love, human life. So you've led us to where? Lunacy? Death? Where are you leading these men now? Huh? Where? Knowledge. Well, you can go without me. Come along, Danforth. Let's go. It's all come out now. It's all oh come out God, now. Oh my God, Kimbo. Intense scene, isn't it? Bang. But F- yeah, I had to recreate it because it's got the classic Tom yelling. Yeah, it's great. My <laughs> she wife, was my wife. wife like, my wife. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Far out. The little fight scene there, you know, you, yeah. get, you, get yeah. a little bit of, you, you need to give the audience a little bit of something. But Dyer starting to realize now, Lake, he doesn't care about anyone. He cares about He cares a little bit more about the exhibition than yeah. anyone else. Exactly. Yes, yes, yes. Maybe, yes. maybe it's, somehow it's driven him mad. <laughs> <laughs> the mountains have driven him mad. <laughs> yes, but now, so Dyer said, I'm, I'm not going anymore. So some of the research crew, including Lake and Danforth, they climb aboard the planes and the planes take off to get answers up in the mountains of madness. And as they fly up, we see a figure now in the snow below them. It's Gunnison in human form again as he slowly makes his way back to the ark. Well, we've come to the end of part one of our cancelled movie report on the famed Guillermo del Toro's At the Mountains of Madness. We hope you enjoyed this episode and we would love it if you would subscribe, be it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen. That really does help us get discovered in the charts. And it would be terrific if you could give us a five-star rating or more, most importantly of all, just tell a friend. We're completely independent here at Cancel Movie Report, so your support really does mean the world to us. And if you do like the show and you want to support it, why not join us on our Patreon? We have a whole bonus podcast on there called Casting Calls, where we talk about famous what-ifs in Hollywood casting and make them true. And hey, what do you think of the movie so far? And have we missed anything? We'd love to hear from you. You can always get in touch with us via cancelledmovies at gmail.com or at cancelledmovies on all of the socials. And maybe there's a cancelled movie project you've always wanted to hear about. Why not let us know? You can fill out the form in the episode description alerting us to a project and we may just give it the cancelled movie report treatment. We would also love to thank our amazing voice cast headed by Evan Ferrante as William Dyer, as Tom Cruise in this movie, but the whole cast you'll find listed in the episode notes below. I'm Michael Campbell. I've hosted and edited this episode, and Eden Porter, he's my co-host as well. Thank you very much, Cambo. Please join us next week. But if you can't wait, here's a sneak peek. Where have you been? We should go back. Help them. We can't help them. We'll help ourselves. Those things back there, they've probably taken the whole crew by now. Not everyone. No, no, no. No, don't say that. Look. You saw enough. But until then, take care.